we're in the midst of a series that we started last week called The God That I Wish You Knew. And it's a really fun, really exciting series, and I think it's important for us to be thinking about just who this God that we worship is. Last week we talked about God as our Father. We talked about the story of the prodigal son, and really it's the story of this father who's seeking his children, who wants to know his children, and who does. Uh, the, the prodigal son runs away, forsakes everything, and when he decides to come back, the father is on the lookout, right? The father is watching and waiting, and he knows what it looks like when his son is a far, a far, far way off, and he runs out to meet him, and he welcomes him home. And I love that story. I love that idea of this God who seeks us, who's, who's constantly watching for us, who constantly wants to welcome us home and to include us, and even to throw a party for us when we've done things uh, that we shouldn't have done, when we've forsaken this God. Uh, he, he welcomes us back graciously. And so I, I love getting to talk about that last week, and this week I want to talk about a, a different aspect of God, another uh, side to God. And so last week, you might remember that I, I told you that I asked some of you, who is God? What are the names that you uh, identify God with? Uh, what are the identities? What are the things that you know God to be? And, and ten of you responded, and I got back so many different names. Uh, last week I told you that I got eight out of the ten said Father, and then the rest were really diverse. There was uh, a whole wide range of different things. But one idea kept coming back up, and it's this idea that God is a big God. Uh, a couple of different names that, that I got back were things like Almighty, uh, Creator, Architect, Designer, Lord, Lawgiver. And what I love about all of those different names is that they have this idea behind them that God is somehow bigger than we are. That somehow God has authority over us and that God uh, can, can give us things like laws, things that are good for us, things that are good for us to follow. And, and all of these come back to the same idea, that God is a big God. But, you know, the, the thing about it is they're all so different, the, the answers I got back. Uh, you can see them on the screen, uh, many of them. They're so different. They're so diverse. And so God is a big God not just because he's got authority over us, but because he plays a lot of different roles. Uh, we all identify with this God in different ways. Different images from Scripture come and they, they speak to us. They're important to us. They're impactful to us. And so a couple of the other things that I got back were things like teacher and guide, savior, provider, maker, friend. God fills all of these roles. He, he does all of these different things for us. And he does it without missing a beat. And, and I love thinking about, uh, you know, imagine a person trying to be all of these different things. Imagine uh, a friend or a spouse trying to be a teacher, a guide, a savior, a provider, a friend. You, you'd probably get sick of this person, right? They'd be doing too much. They'd be trying too hard. Uh, I don't, uh, you know, I love my family. I love my dad. My dad is here this morning. I love my wife. But I don't want them to be my savior. I don't want them to always be there to fix everything for me. I want to be able to figure some things out on my own. Maybe you have similar experiences in your own life. If somebody that we knew tried to fill all of these roles, we'd say that they were trying too hard and they were doing too much. But with God, it's a little bit of a different story because God is big enough to fill all of these roles. Uh, one of the interesting things about our culture is that we I idealize busyness, uh, that busyness is something that we actually aspire to. It's important to us. Uh, I can tell this because I have a calendar, I have a planner, and in it I write what's going to happen all the time, and uh, I, I go step by step through that calendar and through that planner to make sure that I don't miss out on anything, to make sure that I do all the things that I need to do. So many of you maybe have similar practices. Uh, and it's this idea in our, in our culture that, that busyness is something that gives us meaning. It gives us a purpose. It, you know, we love to mark off to-do lists. We love to, to finish projects, to, to do all of these different things. And sometimes we even let those things give us a purpose in our life. 
Uh, my, one of my mentors, Jonathan Storman, is preaching a sermon series right now on the seven deadly sins, and I've loved getting to listen to those because he, he tries to, to talk about these in different ways than we might understand. And a lot of the language that we use in those seven deadly sins is kind of antiquated. You know, we, it's not normal language that we still use all the time. And so when he got to the idea of sloth, I really liked what he had to say because a lot of times we think of sloth as laziness, which it certainly is. But the deeper idea, the deeper thing behind sloth is that it's actually the failure to do the most important work in our lives. So our culture that idealizes this busyness, that we have calendars and planners and and we're constantly in the midst of doing some project or something, it's this idea that when we give our lives meaning through those actions, that we're actually engaging in sloth. Because we're avoiding the most important work in our lives. And that's not to say that that our jobs or the things that we write in those planners aren't important. But that if we use those things to avoid the most important work in our lives, it's sloth. And the Christian story is bigger than that. The Christian story tells us that that our lives have a deeper purpose, a deeper significance than just marking off to-do list items. And so when we think about our God as being this big God... It's because it's this God who gives us meaning and value. It's not the things that, that we do at our job. It's not the things that we accomplish. It's not the tasks that we fulfill. But it's this God who gives us meaning and purpose in our lives. And that's part of, of this big God that we worship. It's part of this idea that God is bigger than we are. That somehow God has authority over us. We see uh, in Scripture, we see constantly different examples of the people of Israel and and the people in the church uh, misunderstanding this idea, don't we? Uh, Just think about the story of the Exodus with me for a few minutes. Uh, In the story of the Exodus, we see the people of Israel be delivered by God, and yet they keep coming back to these questions. Over and over again, they're going to be faced with different issues, different troubles, different trials, and they keep asking the same question throughout all of, of the story. They keep saying, wouldn't it be better for us to have stayed in Egypt? Now remember, they've been enslaved. They've been enslaved for, for more than 400 years. And they keep coming back to this question, wouldn't it be better for us to have just stayed there? This God has delivered them. He's brought them out of slavery. And he's, he's bringing them to a land that he's promised to them. A land where they can be their own people. And they keep coming back and asking this question. And it's because they have a small view of God. It's because they don't understand just how big this God is. And so when they get to the Red Sea, right, they're, they're trapped at the Red Sea. The Egyptian army has changed their mind, and they're coming, uh, to, they're coming to get them, to bring them back to Egypt, to re-enslave them. And, and they, they ask this question, wouldn't it be better for us to have just stayed than to die here? And then we, we know the story, you know, God parts the Red Sea, and they, they go on. But it doesn't stop there. It happens again and again. You know, they don't have food. They don't have water. Uh, they get to the promised land, and they see that the people there are too big. They're, they're, there's too many of them. They can't possibly take this promised land. Wouldn't it have been better for us to just stay in Egypt? This is the constant refrain that we hear throughout their story. That they actually wish that they could have just stayed where they were, enslaved. And it's all because they have a small view of who God is. Over and over again, we see examples of the way that the people have failed to understand it. But every once in a while, there's a story where the people get it. The people see just how great their God is, just how big he is, just how much he can do, how much he can handle. And so this morning, I want us to look briefly at one of those examples. It comes from Psalm 27, so if you've got your Bibles this morning, feel free to turn with me there. Uh, We'll read a couple of verses, and then we'll return to this psalm a little bit later on. Uh, And if not, uh, if you don't have your Bible, the words will be on the screen behind me. So Psalm 27, starting in verse 1. It says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? 
The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evil men advance against me to devour my flesh, when my enemies and my foes attack me, they will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then I will be confident. I love what the psalmist says. He's got all these problems. He's got all these issues going on around him. He's got enemies attacking. He's got people who are surrounding him. And he says, whom should I be afraid of? Because he knows just how big this God is. He knows who this God that he worships is and what this God can do for him. And so he, he calls out and he says, of whom should I be afraid? I'll put my trust in God. I'll put my confidence in God. And it's such this beautiful picture of what it means to truly believe that this God is a big God. That the God that we worship actually can take care of us. Actually cares for us. Actually is paying attention to the things that go on in our life. But a lot of times we fail to do that. We, we, a lot of times, at least in my life, I fail to be like the psalmist. I have this small view of God. That when trials come, when troubles come, who do I turn to most often? Myself. The people that I think can help me with my problems. Often it's not until the third or fourth or, or fifth or somewhere down the line that I finally turn to God and I realize it's this God that can help me. It's this God that I need to trust in, that I need to have confidence in. And it's not just me. Uh, you know, as much as, as much as it might be nice if it was just me who thought that way or who, who worked that way, it's, it's all of us. Uh, it's no surprise that our culture is one of the most fearful cultures in the world. Uh, we, we have so many different issues. We, uh, not only do we fear for ourselves, but we fear for, for the things that are going on in the world. Uh, we fear for, for other people. Uh, this is a culture in which we live in which we actually have more cases of anxiety and, and depression, uh, of things like PTSD, uh, than, than we can, have ever had before. Uh, some of that is because now we're able to diagnose that. But we're seeing over and over again that people have this great fear. That this culture is, seems to be crumbling around us. That uh, whether it's the economy or, or politics or, or our own personal finances or whatever it is, that we have this fear. And that sometimes we fail to turn to God and trust in him first. You see, this morning, I don't want to belittle those things. I don't want to belittle any, any issue that's going on in your life because it's a real threat. It's a real thing. For many of us, it's, it's, it's something that is going on within our minds. It's something that's imprisoning us within our minds. It's something that we can't seem to control. Uh, and it seems like the enemies are closing in around us. It seems like constantly we're being struck with, with thing after thing that seems to go against us, that seems to not go our way, that not help us, to, but actually harms us. Uh, for others of us, it's, it's outside forces. It's things that we don't exactly have control over. But we have this issue. We have these troubles. We have this or that thing that's, that seems to be surrounding us, that seems to be attacking us. And many times, unlike the psalmist, we fail to put our trust in God first. We need a bigger God in these cases. We need a God who can take care of us. We need a God who's, who's big enough, who's bigger than our problems, who's bigger than the trials that we face, who can come, and even though the, the, the enemies are surrounding us, even though things are closing in around us, this God can take care of us. So, if you're anything like me, this morning, having a fence on stage with one slat missing has been a little bit of a bother to you. Uh, it's been nice for me because I've been facing this way, uh, and I haven't been able to look at it, because I know that if I was facing this way, every, the whole time I've been talking, I would be bothered by it. And a lot of times in our lives, when something is broken, when something is missing, we turn to ourselves to fix it first. We want to be the people 
who take care of the problem, who find that slat and replace it, who put it back where it goes. And this slat, and especially, it has nails all ready to go. I don't know if y'all can see that out there. But it has nails ready to go. It's ready to be fixed. It's something in our lives that we turn, that we see, and we say, I can fix that, I can do that, I can change that, I can make that the way it's supposed to be. And so a lot of times, what do we do? We pick up a hammer, we put it back where it goes, and we start to hammer it back. That's what we do a lot of the times. But sometimes, those problems are bigger than a fence. Sometimes it's something that we don't have control over. Sometimes it's something that we need someone bigger than us to help us with. And it's in those moments that people like this psalmist tell us that we can turn to God, that we can put our trust in God. A lot of the problems in our lives aren't like this fence. A lot of the things are things that we can't control. Uh, and so this morning, I don't want us to leave thinking that uh, all we have to do is grab a hammer and a nail and just, uh, and just keep hitting it until it's fixed. Because a lot of those problems don't fit that way. But what we learn from this psalmist, what we learn from this uh, story of the Bible, is that we worship a big God. And even in the midst of those troubles, even in the midst of enemies surrounding us, even in the midst of an economic downturn, even in the midst of, of this or that problem that you're facing, that God is bigger than that problem. One of the things that I love about the story of Scripture is that uh, even though God is bigger than our problems, uh, the problems still exist, right? Uh, a lot of times we're, we're, we're tempted to think uh, the, if the problems are still there, that means that God doesn't want to fix them. That means that God isn't big enough to fix them. That God somehow can't fix the problems of the world. And so when we say that we worship a big God, it can easily make us think that if God doesn't fix a problem for us, that God is an insensitive jerk. That God is not who he says he is. But the story of scripture is actually more than that. Because while we worship a big God, we also worship a God who became small. It's this God who, in the person of Jesus, came down and dwelt among us. And he didn't just whisk away our troubles and our fears and our anxieties, but he actually came and lived with us. He actually came and endured suffering with us. Because this is a big God who chose to become small and who chose to endure the suffering that we face and to face many of the problems that we have today still. So God's not an insensitive jerk. He's this God who's become small. And that this God who, through Jesus, has, has actually healed us, is trying to heal us, wants to heal us of the many things that are going on in our lives. God doesn't just whisk away trouble. He doesn't just fix things just like that. But he's among us. He's with us, even in the midst of those trials. Some of the other names that I heard back from many of you when I asked uh, who God is to you were things like Faithful, Prince of Peace, Provider. And what I love about these names is that when I asked them from them, when I got them from you, uh, they, they were so diverse. And many of them were mentioned just once or twice. But these are names that have been handed down to us from centuries ago. That faithful Christians throughout the centuries have passed this on to us. The writers of Scripture have given us these images of who God is because they're important and they matter. But they're not unique to just us. 
They're the things that people throughout history have grasped. And when they've seen God, they've said, this is who God is. This is the essence of who God is. That God is faithful and that he provides for us. That he's the one who takes care of us. That he's the prince of peace. And that even in the midst of trouble, God is there with us. And so when we think about this big God, it's not just that he's a big God for us, but he's a big God for all of us. And for those who aren't even in this room, that God is a God who's bigger than we can even imagine. I want us to look at the next couple of verses out of Psalm 27, because I think that they'll be helpful for us as we continue thinking about this idea of God as big. One thing I ask of the Lord, and I love that question, because uh, that, that, that framing of this, because there's one thing that this psalmist is going to ask, and it's not that the trouble would be whisked away. It's not that, that his enemies would all of a sudden turn into chickens or, or that they would suddenly be gone, that they would just vanish. One thing that he's going to ask, here it is, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to sink him in his temple. For in the day of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his tabernacle and set me high upon a rock. Then my head will be exalted above my enemies who surround me. At his tabernacle will I sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. In the midst of the trouble, when the enemies are still there, when they're still surrounding the psalmist, the one thing that he seeks is God. It's not that the trouble would be gone. It's not that it would vanish, but that he would be able to be with God. That God would be present with him. And I love what happens next, because uh, the enemies are still surrounding, things are still going wrong, things are still bad, but God exalts the psalmist and lifts him up and sets him on a rock, and the enemies are still there, and they get to see what God has done for this psalmist. They get to see that God is there with him, that God is present in his life, that God is there amongst, uh, even, even in the midst of that suffering. God is present. Because this is a big God. And this God that we worship doesn't just make our troubles vanish, but he comes along beside us and he sits with us. This big God chose to become small in the form of Jesus to be with us, to comfort us, to provide for us. Uh, I heard a story of a family at at the church that I grew up in uh, about six years ago. Uh, It was a tragic story. Uh, The family had this daughter uh, this sister, this mother, uh, and she one day became sick. Uh, she uh, came home from work that day, and, and she was, had a fever, and it continued to rise. And over the course of five days, the fever got up to the point where she had a 105-degree fever. And the family was really concerned, really worried about it. But finally, the fever broke, and the family was happy because they thought that this meant that she was beginning to get better, that she was beginning to heal. But just a couple of days later, she wound up in the hospital. First in the ER, and then in the ICU. They found out that she was actually uh, dealing with a case of of septic shock, that her body was beginning to shut down, that blood flow was beginning uh, to to be hampered and and inhibited, that all of a sudden her fingers and and her feet, her her, her legs, weren't getting the, the blood that they needed. And so the family had a tough decision to make. And so they decided to go ahead and amputate. Because they thought... Even if she doesn't have her legs, even if she doesn't have her fingers, we'll still have our daughter, our sister, our mother. Just a few days after that, she died. 
And the, the questions began to come in, the questions, where was God in this? Why couldn't we have just had a few, uh, a few more days, a few more months, years? Why couldn't we have been, been able to spend more time with her? Why did this happen to us, to our family? Because this young woman had died much too soon. She had left children behind. She had left brothers and sisters behind. She had left parents behind. And I love the story that the family tells. As they're gathering around her bed in the hospital, and she's just passed, uh, this young woman's mother turns and looks at the rest of the family and says, even in the midst of this, even though this is the most difficult thing we've had to go through, we need to remember that death doesn't win. God wins. So a few days later, the family is... is, uh, holding a memorial service. And the brother of this, of this young woman is a preacher, and so he gets up and he begins to share his eulogy. And so he writes about that experience. And I love what he has to say about what his mom said to him and about how it framed how they went through this tragedy. He says that I stood there holding a microphone, and all I knew to do was to open my mouth and pray for God to speak a word. I was struck with the reality that this crippling feeling is here to stay for a while. It's not leaving. Like a newborn child, grievers begin as infants and must learn to walk again, even though the walk will always be with a limp. Going into the memorial service, two words wouldn't let me go. Jesus wins. Even when it seems like death has won, the story of Easter echoes from the empty tomb that death couldn't hold Jesus and death still can't hold us. Death doesn't get the last word. Jesus wins. We worship a big God. It's a God who was so big that he chose to become small for the sake of us, for the sake of our lives, for the sake of our troubles, for the sake of the things that are going on in our lives. He didn't whisk away our problems. He didn't choose to make them disappear. He came and sat with us. He came and was among us. He even died for us. This is a big God that we worship. So this morning, I don't know what it is that you're going through. I don't know what the trouble is. I don't know what the difficulty is. Maybe this has been a great morning. Maybe this is a wonderful morning for you. And it, no matter what it is, this is a God that's big. He's bigger than me. He's bigger than you. And he's bigger than any trouble this world can throw our way. This is a God who even death couldn't hold. And this is part of the story that we believe. That Jesus wins. And that this is a big, big God. And to me, that's something we're celebrating. And so this morning, our prayer team is going to gather around the room. Uh, if, if this morning something is going on in your life that you need prayer for, there's some trial, there's something going on in your life, I invite you to go and pray with him, to invite God into that situation, to ask God to come and sit among us. Because this is a big God, and he's bigger than your problems. He's bigger than your troubles, and he wants to be with you. And so this morning, as we stand and sing, please come as we worship.